Thank you for joining us for Outfront Magazine. My name is Michael Cisneros. This recording is for November 7th. Today I will be reading the following articles. West Virginian Middle Schooler Sues to Join Track by Penn Watkins, followed by Idaho's Anti-Trans Bathroom Bill Blocked by Court, also by Penn Watkins, then Nelly Furtado's Electrifying Comeback at the Portalo Festival, Day One, by Rose Eden, followed up by various articles. West Virginia Middle Schooler Sues to Join Track Team. 13-year-old Becky Pepper Jackson of West Virginia is a lover of discus, shot put, and track and field. She has been part of her school's teams, and she often practices her skills outside in the rain, her mother says. She has been barred, however, from being part of her school's team recently due to all the laws against trans students joining the affirming teams. But Becky Pepper Jackson and her mother, Heather Jackson, are fighting back. The Jackson family has been fighting against these inane laws barring trans students from joining sports for over two years now. These laws have become all too common, with many states instating laws to keep their students from joining extracurricular activities instead of focusing on student safety, curriculum, and other things that matter more than whether or not a trans student should be allowed to join a sports team. Becky Pepper Jackson says on her battle with the courts on her ability to play sports, I want to keep going because this is something I love to do and I'm not just going to give it up. This is something I truly love and I'm not going to give it up for anything. Heather Jackson, Becky's mom, says on the matter, we're just country people from West Virginia, so it's a little overwhelming. I'm nervous for Becky because I know that she enjoys what she gets from doing her sports, and every kid needs sports. It's just a moral foundation they need to get. They learn responsibility. They learn camaraderie. They learn that people depend on them, and I see how much fun she has. The justice presiding over the case had no evidence to prove that trans students have more of an advantage as compared to cis students. During the case, he used the argument that he coached a basketball team, so he knows what he's talking about. Becky Pepper Jackson is currently on puberty blockers. So even if there was physical evidence lending to the biologically male bodies being stronger than biological female ones, it would not apply here. Idaho's anti-trans bathroom bill blocked by court. Idaho created a transphobic bill that was initially blocked by a judge in August and has been blocked again by a court. This bill, called SB1100, both bans trans students from using the correct bathroom for their identity and offers a $5,000 bounty for those who reported trans students using an appropriate bathroom. Trans students exist throughout all of the grades, ranging from kindergarten to the final year of college. This makes a large percentage of trans students children under the age of 18. Why Idaho lawmakers are so convinced that trans students are a danger to cis students is baffling. Statistically speaking, the most likely person to get hurt for entering a bathroom is a trans person. This is a product of discrimination and current political and social climate, and the harming of trans people based on their identities is a hate crime. 
Regardless, the Ninth Circuit Court has temporarily blocked the transphobic bill because it violates the Constitution's 14th Amendment, specifically the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses, as well as Title IX of the 1972 Educational Amendments both prohibit sex-based discrimination in schools. This ruling is relief not only for our clients, but transgender students across Idaho, that they will be spared from indignity, stigma, and profound harm if this cruel and unconditional law as they go about their school is a time to focus on studies and extracurriculars, not to stress about whether you will be able to use the restroom, says Lambda Senior Counsel Peter Penn in a press release for the Windy City Times. While this is something to celebrate, it's is only a temporary block, not a permanent one. Trans students are still at high risk of being harmed by this bill if it passes through. The most likely case for this bill is that it will appear before the most conservative Supreme Court due to how many times it has been appealed. Nelly Furtado's electrifying comeback at the Portolo Festival Day 1. The second annual Portolo Festival returned to San Francisco's Pier 80 recently. The EDM and techno-centric music festival was held successfully on the southeastern edge of the city. Despite a tricky inaugural year, a slew of headlining DJs, producers, and other acts, ranging from 2000's British Wonderkind's Wonderworld to more contemporary acts like Dom Dola and Labyrinth, performed at the two-day event produced by concert giants Golden Voice. Despite some sound issues that left the crowd both literally and figuratively rattled, it was mostly smooth sailing at the shipyards that weekend. Arriving mid-afternoon on Saturday, the first day, I made it just in time to see Chromio. Chromio, ship tent. Originally hailing from Canada, the unconventionally paired duo have been churning out synth-pop, electro-funk, and new disco ever since the mid-2000s. Predictably, the daytime party was well underway by the time I arrived. The crowd stretched all the way back to the pop-up open-air ship tent, similar to the Sahara stage setup at Coachella. Chromio served as seasoned party starters with their abundance of buoyant energy and flashy stage set. Dave Maklovich and Patrick Geniel's signature chrome guitar and synth keyboards, respectively, duly glistened in the afternoon sun while they sang their roboticized lyrics. Jenny L. sported a San Francisco Giants jersey. The festival had custom made for the artist with his name on the back. The rest of his outfit, a traditional dashiki. Known to their fans as Dave One and P. Thug, the Montreal-based Roysters grooved their way through nearly 20 songs for just short of an hour. Fancy footwork, my favorite Needy Girl, Mama's Boy, Night by Night, and Jealous, I Ain't With It, were standouts of the set. A glimpse into their fresh track, Personal Effects, proved to be a very promising preview of their new album, Adult Contemporary, due out in early 2024. When it comes to Chromio, an unlikely pairing of longtime friends encouraged early on by a mega DJ and a college pal, DJ Tyga, have been getting the party started for close to two decades now, with no end in sight. Once dubbed a reincarnation of Holland Oates, they've been equi- unequivocally honed a sound of their own, one that's sure to keep the dance floor packed night after night. Nelly Furtado, Pier Stage. 
The highlight of the day was hands down getting to see Nelly Furtado, making her return to the stages after a five-year hiatus in July of 2002. Her pit stop at Portola was part of the first successful tour she's had in over 15 years. The promiscuous girl singer has had what seemed like a series of false startups until recently, despite the first decade of her career flourishing, clad all in black leather, Furtado positively dominated the main, aka peer stage, for a show-stopping set that flew by in the blink of an eye. Wasting no time, Furtado started immediately in on a string of her most popular singles, including Say It Right, Man Eater, Turn Out the Lights, and I'm Like a Bird, before plunging into a half dozen of severely entertaining mid-career songs, all sped up and remixed into electronica-tinged dance tunes. I was personally impressed by the amount of live singing she did. It's always a roll of the dice, whether you get to see a performance or a mixture of that. And the real thing, just shy of turning 45 years old in December, the Portuguese-Canadian performer has sold over 45 million records worldwide and has never looked or sounded better. And I say so far because Furtado dropped a new single with JT and Timbaland at the beginning of September 2023, teasing in an interview earlier this spring that she's recorded over 100 new songs and is eager to get back out on the road. After witnessing this set, it's almost unfathomable to think that the turnout for the opening night of her 2015 tour had less than 2,500 attendees, a foreshadowing of a run that never gained momentum and a sense of traction that has yet to pick back up again until recently. And speaking of Timbaland, the performance wrapped up with a cover of Give It To Me, followed by Promiscuous Girl. The elated crowd was composed mostly of those who were much too young to see her the first few years she toured, though, but had seemingly been waiting with bated breath for her return. And all of us, even those like myself, who are old enough to remember seeing her 22 years ago, were just as blown away then as we were now. And whether one actually liked the set or not, blown away indeed seems to be the right term to use for the sound system during the set. With a thumping bass so loud, it actually made the back of my throat hurt. Many folks had their hands clamped tightly over their ears for much of the performance that was so loud. Everything around us rattled like one long, ongoing sonic boom. My ears were achy from the experience for days afterwards. Not from the festival, from that set in particular. There even came a point where I flat out began to wonder if Magneto himself was going to lower himself from the sky with a vengeful and out-of-control phoenix, destroying everything in sight like in the beginning of that one X-Men movie. But I digress because I'll do it all over again in a heartbeat. Anecdotally, the city of Alameda located clear across the water next to Oakland ended up filing a noise complaint against the festival in October 2023. Polo and Pan Pier Stage I was up against the barricades by then, and French Tropical House DJ pairing Polo and Pan were up next, and I was ready to settle in for an after-dark electro-disco boogie, celebrating the long-awaited final performance of a two-year-long tour. The Parisian duo were ecstatic as they sailed through a 70-minute-long set of the mid-tempo 
world music influence EDM they've been making together since 2012. Stopping to hug and congratulate each other at least three times during the gig, Paul and Alexander took turns singing songs off both albums and the six various EPs they've dropped over the past decade, plus on Hamburger Records. Joining them on stage for several songs throughout the night was French singer-dancer Victoria Lefriere, who appear and reappear on stage intermittently with a combination of Jane Birkin-inspired French pop vocals and her own signature style of modern dance moves. Her addition gave the electronic duo's music a throwback thievery corporation vibe. I enjoyed their singing quite a bit and found their overall presence to be both ethereal and captivating. It was hard to take your eyes off of her, but in an odd way, as her ballet, jazz, lyrical, modern dance choreography was equal parts lovely and just plain bizarre. For every floaty, light-as-air spin, sachet, or jump she would do, there were an equal amount of interpretive dance moves which translated quite strongly. At times, she almost gave off the vibe of a stereotypical drunk mom in the concert audience. Flipping her wrists and palms around in all directions, then she'd do another beautiful pass, just like a trained ballerina. It was very hard for my brain to process if I enjoyed what I was watching in the moment or not. But at the end of the day, I did enjoy her performance, and she added quite a bit of live dynamic. The graphics for their gig that evening were excellent, a modern take on mid-century retro-futurism with every color of the rainbow in clusters undulating with the music, rather than trying to look high-tech, super-robotic, or hyper-extra-terrestrial with their visual displays. Polo and Pan served up a super-serotonin rush with fully saturated colors with satisfying bold outlines moving in organic directions as they change in a kaleidoscope of different patterns, all with softly rounded edges. Despite not seeing their act before and considering they're due for a good long break, after 730 days on the road, I'd absolutely go see them again, not for some rowdy, outrageous, raving dance party, but for the immaculate vibes. No wonder one of the most popular songs is called Feel Good, and I'd love to see Polo and Pan tour the band like Poolside for their cohesive overall experience it would provide, and their capacity for collaboration is clearly well honed. It's no wonder they've stayed booked and busy for over two years straight. Cobra, Ship Tent, Eric Pride's Pier Stage. I was then faced with a conundrum of five artists overlapping back-to-back to back, and although I aspire to stick it out, I managed to catch at least four out of five. First, I hightailed it back to the ship tent for a Rubenesque cyber pop star Cobra's energy-filled set, reminding me a lot of Peaches early on in her career. I could have easily stayed for the entirety of her 50-minute long dance party, but I had to hightail it back to pure stage for the Swedish mega-DJ Eric Prides and his epic visual display Holo. Unsure what to expect, other festival goers explained that the show alone was the biggest event of the day, unlike Odessa, for example, who utilizes her laser lights and various drones. Holo took advantage of the concert's giant screens to create a larger-than-life, extraterrestrially inspired 3D experience that took you everywhere from the pyramids of Egypt to outer space and beyond. Chris Lake and Armand Van Helden the warehouse Flying Lotus crane stage. 
The crowd was ecstatic, and the giant rave that had formed had unmatchable energy. I pried myself away from the madness in order to duck into the warehouse for the first time that weekend because DJs Chris Lake and Armand Van Helden had started up. Also, because the port wind had picked up and I was freezing cold. The warehouse was just as it seemed, a long, oblong building with large square doors for big rig trucks to unload during the day and the site of a controversial skirmish last year, with the overall strategy of dancing inside until I warmed up enough to face the elements again. I had more fun than I expected, dancing to their set of house and classic EDM alongside a football field of folks having the time of their lives on Saturday night in San Francisco. By the time I left the warehouse and drug myself back to the semi-outdoor ship tent for what turned out to be my last set of the night, I chuckled thinking I'd make it all the way through the very last act I wanted to see, early 2000s UK sensations Underworld, because I was freezing my ass off. Trying my best to stay warm towards the center of the crowd, there was no way I wasn't going to see at least a little bit of the Flying Lotus. The legendary producer who worked with just about every big name in rock, hip-hop, R&B, soul, funk, and EDM for the past three decades was well worth the wait and bad weather. Undulating from heavily sampled, soulful, funky grooves to vibey, boppy vocal house to breakbeat lace straight up techno. I only lasted the first 25 minutes, but I'm quite positive the set evolved far beyond that. Day one under my belt, I was as inspired as I was exhausted, but I had a lot more fun than originally anticipated. Despite not knowing what to expect of the EDM festival set up on a shipping dock at the edge of San Francisco, is only its second year of operation. I had a really positive experience at the Portola Festival and was looking forward to the next full day of music. Vote to expel George Santos from Congress fails. A vote to expel Representative George Santos, the embattled New York Republican who has been indicted on federal counts of financial fraud and misdealings from the House, failed this Wednesday. The vote came after a group of fellow New York Republicans introduced a privileged resolution forcing the vote last week. The resolution was introduced by Rep- Representative Anthony de Esposito, and whether the motion will succeed is unclear. This will be the second vote in six months by the House on whether or not Santos can keep his seat amid the ongoing felony charges the congressman faces. In order to expel Santos, the House needed a two-thirds of the legislators to vote in favor of the motion. That would be 289 members of the House. The vote wound up being 179 in favor to 213, with 19 members voting president. The motion's possibility of success was slim, especially since Republicans currently hold a slim majority in the lower chamber and a vote to expel Santos would further weaken the majority. Considering the razor-thin majority, Republicans have come to rely on Santos' vote to pass legislation in line with their agenda, even if he is mired in legal trouble. Furthermore, Speaker Michael Johnson who has a long history of anti-LGBTQ plus activism, has expressed concerns over expelling the known fabulist. Ahead of the vote, Johnson has said he doesn't support removing Santos without due process, echoing fears by the other House Republicans that expelling Santos ahead of criminal proceedings or a report by the House Ethics Committee would set a dangerous precedent. 
Representative Esposito, whose motion was joined by a group of fellow freshman Republicans representing potential swing districts in New York, argue that there is a sufficient evidence that George Santos is not fit to serve. Ahead of the vote, the cohort released a letter urging their colleagues to follow through with the removal. This issue is not a political one, but a moral one. We agree it would set a precedent, but a positive one. They wrote, addressing some of their objections. Clearly, their plea was not given much weight. Another member of the cohort, Republican Nikki Lalota, told reporters last week that they introduced the resolution following Santos. Former campaign treasurer Nancy Marks pleaded guilty to conspiring to defraud the government. In October, Marks testified before a federal court indicating that Santos illegally submitted bogus campaign reports to attract potential donors. Marx went on to add that Santos falsely wrote campaign finance reports claiming he had loaned $500,000 to his campaign. He hadn't. Marx claims Santos did this in order to make his campaign appear well-funded to attract other donors. Furthermore, Marx testified that she gave the Federal Elections Commission a fake list of donors with the names of real people who either hadn't donated or given permission for Santos's campaign to use their names. George Santos is the first openly gay Republican elected to Congress who made national news after it was revealed he fabricated numerous details of biography. Since Santos was elected back in 2022, it's been revealed he made numerous false and deceitful claims regarding his family and background. For instance, he claimed that he lost employees in the tragic Pulse nightclub shooting, although none of the victims had any connection to Santos. Mr. Santos faces a 23-count federal indictment, including 10 new charges covering wire fraud, sealing public funds, and lying on financial statements. Santos has continued to plead not guilty on all these charges. In May, another attempt to expel Santos by a group of Democratic congressmen had a similar fate. At the time, Republicans avoided the vote, pushing the issue to the House Ethics Committee, which had said they will announce the next steps for an investigation into Santos on November 17th. Anatomy of a Fall enthralls audiences with chilling depiction of murder. 90 out of 100. If you're looking for a mix between a murder mystery and a cerebral courtroom drama, then you're in luck. Anatomy of a Fall, the most recent Cannes Film Festival winner, has exactly what you are looking for. Set on a picturesque background of the French Alps, Justin Triet's most recent film is an introspective on the nature of truth, pain, and the identities we create for ourselves. Anatomy of a Fall opens with novelist Sandra Voigtner, Sandra Huller, being interviewed by a student about her work. The interview comes to an abrupt halt when Sandra's husband, Samuel, blasts an instrumental version of 50 Cent's PIMP on repeat from the attic. Sandra's partially blind son, Daniel, has taken the family's seeing-eye dog, Snoop, out for a jaunt in the Grenoble foothills. Sometime after the student has been forced to end her interview, and Daniel has made his way back to the chalet, that's when we see it, Samuel's body bleeding in the snow. The rest of the movie follows an investigation by police into Samuel's death, which they believe to have been the result of foul play. After becoming the prime suspect in her husband's murder, Sandra reaches out to her lawyer friend, Vincent, played by the tousled-haired Swan Arlu, to defend her in court. Trent builds anatomy of a fall out of a singular question, 
did she do it? While the question looms on the utmost facade of Trayette's movie, what the French filmmaker and co-writer Arthur Harari want to examine goes beyond initial preconceptions of what a murder mystery usually are. Triot's film serves as a dissection of a relationship, one that began as a hot-blooded and passionate romance between two young creatives who has soured to resentment and tragedy, or what was truly what Sandra and Samuels was. That's for the audience to decide, at least. We are asked to discern whether Samuel's death was a murder by a frustrated and cold woman fed up with her husband's blame for his struggling writing career, or suicide by an unstable man who felt hopeless, trapped in a relationship with a woman whom he thinks blames him for their son's accident in his youth. We explore how both people dealt with the pain of almost losing their child. While Samuel became depressive and retreating inwards, it is revealed that Sandra began stepping out in their relationship. In fact, Sandra's grieving process involves her exploring her sexuality with another woman, a fact that the prosecution uses to muddy the waters of the trial and tries to use as evidence of Sandra's disdain for her husband. Anatomy of a Fall is unique in its use of language. Although it is a French production, a good two-thirds of the movie is actually in English. Sandra herself, a German immigrant, is not fully fluent in French. Further complicating the trial, the language barrier in the film adds to the sense of suspicion that looms over the film's second act. Hewler and Arlo's performance are captivating, enveloping their characters in the layers of intrigue, concealing their intentions. Mershado Grana, is, in spite of his age, holds his own against these seasoned actors of European cinema, and Sadia Benitib is a joy to watch as co-counsel. Although Anatomy of Fall does suffer from some unorthodox editing choices, that doesn't really add to the narrative and comes off as jarring to the film's overall tone. The intricacies of the plot and stellar performances by far outweigh the negatives of the movie. Thank you again for joining us for Outfront Magazine. My name is Michael Cisneros. 